Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to the phenomenal talent that we have in robotics and AI in Australia. Today, I'm continuing my series of talks with the winners of the Women in AI Australia New Zealand Awards evening that was held on the 31st of March. It's my absolute pleasure to speak with Dr. Melanie Zeppel today. Melanie is a senior data scientist and researcher at Carbon Link. She was awarded the 2022 Women in AI for Agribusiness Award for Carbon Modeling Using Machine Learning. Melanie, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. You're a very accomplished data scientist and researcher, uh, I think with over 60 published papers, um, winning the WAI Agribusiness Award. Tell us a little bit about the carboning model used by machine learning. Sure. So uh, our company, um, we help uh, farmers to measure the increases in soil carbon on their properties. And um, as a little bit of background, there's a company, there's a process called regenerative agriculture, which is where um, landholders can take better care of their land and they will um, change the strategies that they're using on their land. And then there'll be more soil carbon in their land, but also they'll increase uh, the water holding capacity and also they'll increase um, the amount of um, crops that can grow there as well. And um, what our business does is it will measure the soil carbon at two points in time and then estimate the change. And then we will give the um, landholder um, will tell them how many tonnes of carbon their land has increased and then the federal government will give them, um, um, they're called ACUs, Australian Carbon Credit Units, and so they actually get money for the uh, tonnes of carbon that they've increased in their land. And it's quite labour-intensive to go out on these properties with um, utes to dig all the soil, all the holes in the ground. So we are using modeling and machine learning is one of the methods that we're using. And this will mean that uh, we can predict how much soil carbon there is around the landscape without having to go out. Um, and the, so does that kind of explain it in a nutshell? Listen, you're talking to an absolute novice here. So as yeah. you're going along, I've got these questions popping up right. in my mind. So, yeah. so how, how do you actually measure it? Yeah. Um, all right. So I'll tell you how we measure it first and then I can get into how the machine learning works. So we have uh, like trucks or they're like utes, but the people call them rigs and they go out in these people's properties and then people might have like a 500 hectare property or a 1000 hectare property and they will um, drive around and they'll have a big, um, like it's a cora on the back and it, it pushes down into the ground down to 1.2 metres into depth and it pushes down so hard that the other end of the um, track goes up in the air. So it takes a core um, and the diameter is something like five centimetres and it takes this cylindrical core of soil and then they put it on the um, truck or the ute and then they take it back to the laboratory. And so when the soil core, they take about two or 300 um, soil core, well, it depends on how big the property, but they take between like 60 and 200 cores per property to get the spatial variability. And then they use a, um, an NIR, which is near infrared spectrometer. 
to estimate the organic carbon content in each core, and that will change with depth. Uh, and you, we also have to measure things. There's other things in the soil as well as carbon. So we measure the gravel content, we measure the bulk density, and that is the mass, so the weight of the soil for, um, for the volume. So if you have like some fluffy, so if you had like a core full of feathers, that would be much lighter than if you had a core full of concrete type soil. So that is one of the things that we use to measure. Um, and also because the mass of each soil core will vary, we uh, kind of normalize them using a process called equivalent soil mass. So we make the mass equal so we can compare the before and after of the an equivalent mass. Uh, so basically we take the field samples and then we take them back to a lab and then we use a near-infrared spectrometer uh, and that estimates the soil organic carbon. And then also we send some subsamples to a NATO accredited lab and they use a combustion method where they put the soil in an oven and burn it at an incredibly high temperature. And that is used to create models that um, will validate and um, calibrate the soil carbon from the lab and the field samples. And then we use some complicated spatial scaling algorithms to get the soil carbon from each core and scale them across the landscape because the landscape might be a bit hilly or they might have a different crop in a different area. Um, and then eventually we, um, we calculate the difference, right? So we scale the soil carbon spatially and also then we calculate the differences in soil carbon um, over a five-year period. So we measure once and then we measure um, a second time. So most of our clients have got their first measurements in 2016 that we're doing now for the second period. And we just took the 2021, 2022 measurements and we can see how over five years the soil carbon has increased in most of the areas. Um, and it's kind of interesting, um, and this feeds into the modeling because um, there's a lot of changes of soil carbon from zero to 30 centimeters because it gets wet, it gets dry, it gets hot. So there's a lot of change of the soil carbon then. But the deeper areas from like 31 centimeters down to 1.2 meters, that, um, that's three quarters of the depth and uh, that doesn't change as much. So uh, that's how you measure soil carbon. And then the next question is, how do you do machine learning on that? So we use the machine learning to predict the soil carbon. Uh, we use input data, like remotely sensed data from satellites. And there's a product called NDVI, which is Normalized Digital Vegetation Index, which is kind of like what the vegetation, how green the vegetation is in that area. Also, we look at soil wetness. There's a soil wetness index. So a wetter or a drier soil will have different amounts of carbon. Um, and we look at the topography. So is it hilly? Is it flat? And we also look at the lithography, which is, uh, um, you know, the soil composition, um, things like that. Um, and we're also using, as well as machine learning, we're using empirical models, uh, like process-based models, because at the moment, using the machine learning, it provides a snapshot in time. So um, as we're collecting more and more data, we're hoping to develop the machine learning so we can estimate differences over time and also differences in land use. So 
So to, to farmers out there, are all farmers approaching companies such as Carbon Link to do this? Is this a government initiative? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's really fascinating at the moment. So not all farmers want to do it because, um, and, and there's been a lot of interest in the media recently. So the federal government has an initiative to help reach Australia's net zero. They will give farmers money if they store more carbon in their soil but you have to do something different. So you have to say, I'm changing how I move my cattle around or I'm, I'm, I'm doing something different to my land and that's why you should give me more um, money for my carbon credits. So you have to prove additionality. Uh, and um, there's actually lots and lots of farmers that are coming to us and saying, hey, um, we already want to... Um, improve our soil because it's better for the cows um it's better for drought proofing the land um if so if the farmers use regenerative agriculture and that means that they move their cattle around like they'll have ca um, cattle like intensively in one area for a little bit and then they'll eat the um, grass or the pasture and then they'll and then they'll put manure on that land but then they'll move them somewhere else so it means that the grass um gets grazed to a different amount but basically it means that you're taking better care of the land and the side effects are um so soil carbon is like the black rich stuff in your garden and the opposite would be like sandy um cracked um really exposed to the air so all the um good stuff evaporates and nothing will really grow there so the um, side benefits um, are that they get improved drought resilience because um, the black soil holds water for longer. They get better productivity so the pasture and the crops in these areas will grow more because there's better soil water holding and also the carbon makes the crops and the pasture grow better. Um, and then also the cattle that is on that land, they um, are, I don't know, they're fatter or they're, I don't actually understand this bit, but um, the farmers make more profit from having more productive cattle. Um, they also get more above and below ground biodiversity. Um, but the side benefit is that they get profit from the carbon credits. So um, they have all these environmental and, you know, benefits to their profit and their cattle and their land is you know looking much better and they're more proud of their land but what our business does is say hey you've got more carbon in your soil you can get some money from the federal government listen it sounds like a win-win situation for everyone I'm, I'm just thinking my cast my mind back to 50 or 60 odd years ago how farmers managed the land and you know what's available for them now from robotics to you know um, yeah fruit picking machines to this sort of technology and you would be thinking um it it simplifies yes it simplifies it for them but if I was a farmer I'd be going like where do you start with all of this land management because of course your your whole livelihood depends on this yeah so there's a whole suite of things available to people now. I think you can have like tags on your cattle so you can see where they are and you can track where they're walking. And there's a whole bunch of different apps that they can have on their phone where they can see how things are in real time also um, on their machinery. Um, and we, some of the um, businesses that we collaborate with, they give us data. So there'll be where the cows were, for how long, for how many days, what kind of cattle they were, 
um, we use that to feed into our models. And also there's another company called SIBO and they take remotely sensed data and they do this really um, complicated um, aggregation and they just um, have different like land use types. And then that can tell you this is a really productive area. This is a, an area that's a bit dry or the vegetation's died. So there's lots and lots of lots of different ways. So much AI and so much data used at the moment. Yeah. So once you've done the analysis and you sit down with your client and you've now just mentioned you've had your second round with them, you've obviously given them some input of what they should be doing. Can you give me an example of a former that you've dealt with and recommendations and with a second reading, how that's impacted? Yeah. So um, we have, there's another company that um, I think it's called grazing for profit or something. And they educate the farmers in what to do, like how to change their land use so that it's better. Um, but what our company does is we measure the before and the after, and then uh, we will tell them um, how much it's increased. And it's in very early stages, um, so I can't, uh, we haven't actually told the farmers yet, but we're just analysing the data and we're just checking all our algorithms. But some of these farmers, they will get up to 100,000 tonnes of carbon credits and at the moment, an Australian carbon credit unit is worth between $30 and $50 per tonne. So they, these are very large, you know, um, very large amounts of profit. You can get like these people will be getting half a million dollars for their property for having improved their um, improved their land. Well, kudos to them because it's just going to cycle back into the farming yeah. community. These are the yeah. people that feed Australia. So you would be just going, yeah. like, all the help and, that you can get, go for it. Yeah, it's really true. So you've done extensive research in climate change, uh, winning the 2019 Scopus Research of the Year Award. Tell us a little bit about this work. Yeah, so that was that was really lovely. Um, so I spent about 10 to 15 years researching the impacts of drought and elevated CO2 and temperature and extreme rainfall on vegetation and forests. So um, with the floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales, I was quite passionate about that because I was writing in 2009 and, you know, like 10, 12 years ago, if Australia doesn't reduce their carbon emissions, there will be more extreme floods and extreme droughts and bushfires. So um, it's natural to get quite passionate about, um, <laughs> um, you know, Australia doing the right thing by climate change. Um, so the work was looking how vegetation responds to um, future climates and the Scopus Award um, was I actually moved uh, from working in climate change to modelling um, human health and health economics. So the award was kind of a synergy between um, measuring and modelling the impacts of climate change on vegetation and also on human health, and then um, being able to provide policy advice on recommendations on acting for climate change. So um, some of the work we also did was the impacts of heat waves on human health and the impacts of um, particulate matter, like air pollution on cardiovascular health and babies being born prematurely and things like that. So um, I was just reading this morning on some news feed that um, a, a side effect of climate change is going to be insomnia because of the, the added heat people can't yeah. sleep. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's going really to be a real problem. 
Yeah, so it's really true. And also um, the one of the sad things is that uh, lower socioeconomic groups will be more at risk because they will be unable to, um, they won't have air conditioning in their houses or, you know, if they're in aged care. So people who um, are from high income regions or they have a high income, they probably are able to have air conditioning in their house or go to a workplace or an aged care facility where the temperature is comfortable. But um, other people, they might not even have a fan. They might, you know, they just don't have the ability to reduce the temperature in the house. So, yeah, that's that's a side effect. So with our change of government, not that I want to get into politics, but yeah. there, there seems to be like a little bit of a hope for us now on climate change and how this is managed in Australia. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts here on you know, I always look at big corporations and I think, what can I, just as someone at home, do? What What is my footprint here? What difference can I make? Have you got any advice, advice for me and for any listener thinking this? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think over the past uh, 12 to nine years, um, the state governments and individuals and Businesses have been really doing some amazing things for leading the way on climate change in Australia in the absence of um, federal action. Um, at, I'm wearing a climate change scarf. It was I had a birthday and one of my friends made me a scarf which has got um, 100 years of temperature data. So it's um, I, I love it so much I'm wearing it all the time. What can individuals do? So I think one thing that makes... Um, well, the first thing is um, voting for people that have climate change policies. So that's quite timely. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, other things are, so for example, the Mike Cannonbrook's um, AGL thing. So um, there, um, like um, sending an email or so I am a member of an organization called Market Forces and quite regularly they send me things saying, hey, can you tell your superannuation to not invest in coal? Or can you tell your um, bank not to give loans to coal companies? And the surprising thing for me is that I actually see the impact. Like when I send my one little email off, uh, there's obviously, I don't know, like 200 people sending their email off and these organizations change what they're doing. Um, a whole lot of the, a whole lot of um, banks and insurance companies and things like that have said that they're not going to invest in coal anymore. So that's that's one really powerful thing. Um, yeah, there's... Please, please do send me the link of that so I can put yeah. it in the show notes. You know, I think as individuals, we underestimate our... Um, we underestimate the power we have because we think people don't yeah. listen. But collectively, as you've just said, you know, if you send your email to 200 people in your network or however big it yeah. is, it's the ripple effect of doing something. And that shouldn't stop us doing stuff because we think we, we're the individual. You know, it, it always starts with us. Yeah, it's really true. And I think um, this weekend we've seen that if, if somebody cares about something and you, um, like, grassroots action really really can have a lot more um, an impact than maybe any of us imagined and with respect to climate change um, I don't know I think um, so I uh, have lots and lots com lots of conversations with my friends and family um, I, I volunteer for um, things that come around um, with respect to climate change um, I mean, I think it, it depends what your what your gift and what your strength is. But like, if anything, the last weekend showed us that um, enough people 
if enough people care about an issue or if enough people care about climate change, they can just move together and make movements that change the whole landscape of Australia. So, yeah. No, I agree with you. And as you said, this weekend, which was the election um, that's just been held in Australia, that uh, definitely, uh, the, the, well, A, the nation has spoken. That's, that's quite definitive what's happened this weekend here. And um, I think there's sort of a sense of renewed hope, or I certainly feel that. Yeah, um, and um, circling back to the Scopus Researcher um, Award, they said that I wasn't like the best, best candidate, but I also said, so I have um, children and I was uh, a, a mother working in science and a mother working in modelling and STEM, and they liked the fact that um, I was... Um, you know, able to be a role model to other women and mothers that you can, you know, still have a family and be able to do things. And um, it, I feel like it was a bit ironic because on the day my youngest child was sick, so I had to bring her to the award ceremony and she was standing on stage. So all the photographs have me and my <laughs> sick child. <laughs> um, Listen, I think that's wonderful. And that's really nice feedback that you... Um, role modeling for women is particularly important and yeah. um there's the line you can't be what you can't see which yeah well, look there must have always been a first one so I don't know what they say to that line but it is it is good to it is good for women to see other women doing it. and I think in our own minds um and I've spoken to a lot of highly accomplished women you included in this this remark that um they uh, they tend to forget and um, they I'm using that generically how accomplished they are because the, the frame of reference who do you compare yourself to and then right. they feel, you know they're not doing enough and I go trust me you, you're phenomenal in what you're doing and um, it's important to highlight your journey because you know as you say there you are on stage with your sick child and <laughs> well this is how it rolls you know like you're not making excuses for it and you, you're not going to stop doing things because you've got children um, yeah, and that's actually quite important. Yeah, I think it also resonated with the judges and the um, the other people uh, the um, from Scopus. They just said, you know, we really liked how in um, my application I said I am a mother. Um, you know, I, I um, and I I hope to be a role model for other mothers. But you know, the fact that my daughter was on the stage meant that other people who are mothers can go. Oh, you know, maybe. Like maybe I can make a, an impact. Maybe I can do something while raising sick children. And yeah, yeah. I think every every little bit helps. I always say to my kids, everything you do, everything matters. You you can't get get up on the day and go, oh, that doesn't matter. You know, I was rude to someone and go, that doesn't matter. Or you know, I chucked litter. And it doesn't matter. Everything you do matters. Yeah. You know? so, Every little impact, what's the saying? The butterfly flaps its wing in Japan and we have a tsunami here. Like I'm probably exaggerating that, but you know, yeah. there is a flow on effect for everything. Yeah, that's really true. So you've also worked on modeling financial well-being and costs of informal care due to chronic conditions on workforce productivity, particularly on vulnerable populations. Tell us a little bit about this work you did. Yeah, so that was um, that was really interesting research, and I feel like it was um, one of the first pieces of research that I did that actually um, maybe uh, the federal government listened to. So we we were modelling the financial costs to um, individuals and also the federal government of people being out of the workforce due to caring for people. 
So we looked at um, people who were out of the workforce caring for people with back pain or caring for people with dementia or caring for people with um, autism or mental illness. And so for each, so if we just take back pain as an example, um, we used uh, a model of the population of Australia and um, with the age demographics and um, their income for age and gender. And we said, okay, if there are, so there's a survey called HILDA, which is um, talks about people, um, how many people have particular conditions and how many people are in the workforce and how many people are out of the workforce caring for a particular condition. So um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but say, for example, if there are 50,000 people out of the workforce caring for someone with back pain, then those people will lose income. And so say if they leave the workforce at age 50 because their partner has back pain and the average age of retirement is about 67, then that's 17 years of lost income to those people. And then um, also um, the lost income to the federal government. So those people are not paying taxes for 17 years. So, uh, and multiply that by the number of people. And, and also it's important to note that at that age, their income is um, much larger than the people, the income of people aged like 18 to 21. So what we could do is we could model, um, for example, if an intervention for addressing back pain costs $5 million. So um, like um, you come to this clinic or you have this treatment or there's some education about early intervention for back pain. And that intervention means that half the people, um, I'm just making up these numbers, but like half the people are able to return to the workforce because their back pain didn't get too bad then that means that those people will be in the workforce and they'll be paying taxes um, so that the um, nationally, the amount of taxes um, over that period of those, say, 50,000 people, it might end up being like $10 million or it's going to be a number that is dramatically larger than the cost of the intervention. So the modelling shows that some interventions, you know, someone might say, how much does this cost? But the, the greater question is how much will it save in terms of um, people being in the workforce? And it's actually really timely right now with um, discussions in Australia about childcare. So just in the past week, people have been saying, oh, we need to get more women back in the workforce. So we could um, subsidise childcare or we could um, pay childcare workers higher as well as subsidising childcare. And that, that might be a little bit of a cost. But if you consider the impact of all those um, men and women, mostly women working um, as much as they want, maybe like from, you know, two days a week to four days a week or going starting working, the, the fact that all those women are in the workplace, um, we can model that it will actually save, save enormous amounts of money. Um, it also um, um, holds for the so-called costs of acting on climate change, a lot of um, politicians have said, how much will it cost to act? But that's not the question. The question is, what are the long-term costs of doing nothing? The long-term costs of floods, fires, bushfires, human health. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think the last two years is, uh, has been an example of um, not taking those factors into consideration with the severe um, bushfires that we have been through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very traumatic amongst COVID, et cetera. Now, turning to something far more positive, the war. <laughs> yeah. I ask, I ask all the women that I've interviewed, did you nominate yourself or did someone nominate you? 
Right. Now, this is a really good question. So someone, right, and I was just a typical female. Uh, um, someone said, hey, Mel, why don't you nominate yourself for this? award?" I was like, oh, I haven't done enough. I don't really, you know, I, I'm not um, suitable. I haven't done enough machine learning. I haven't been in this field long enough. I haven't started a company. But then um, another, uh, my, my mentor said, no, you should apply for this. Um, and I actually asked my colleagues at the workplace, I was like, I, you know, I don't think that I, I don't think that I should apply for this because I'm not eligible, but everyone just went, oh, you know, throw your hat in the ring. So um, I was really humbled to win it. And I think I've heard often so many times, like women don't apply because they don't feel qualified. I thought I'm just going to act like a man. I'm just going to apply even though I don't feel qualified. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Even though I feel like I didn't deserve it because there were so many other great people, I feel um, humbled because it's the ability to lift up other women, the ability to encourage other women. Um, now I'm getting invited to talk about machine learning and data for a bunch of other companies. And I say at the end of it, there's a woman in AI awards. You should totally apply. There's a transport category. Like you should apply for this award. It's really good. So yeah. Listen, it's very interesting. Um, your reaction is is not unlike other the other um, award winners I've spoken to. They're all very humbled and they don't think they deserve it, but clearly you do because you have won this. And I'm I'm actually very delighted that you've mentioned your journey or the process of how you've done it. Because for other women listening to this, please next year um, throw yeah. your hat in. It's 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 a fantastic. Um, uh, well, look. Kudos first up to Andra and her team for the evening because it was just absolutely superb. And I, I'm sure you could agree the buzz in the room on the evening, it was just quite something else. Yeah, it was amazing. It, like, yeah. I've been wanting to go to the Eureka Awards for a little while, but the, um, the women in AI Awards, you know, the cocktail dresses and the venue and the speakers and the music, it was, it was I don't know, it was like the Oscars. It was amazing. And I would also highly recommend everyone to enter next year because they've been running for two years so you've got a really good shot of getting them whereas you know other established awards tons and tons of people apply but um if people apply next year there's probably it's a really <laughs> there'll be a small pool of people so apply next year <laughs> oh listen uh, and again just for the sheer experience of it um yeah. actually one of the ladies that i spoke to earlier um last week said the actual um the actual filling out of the, the nomination form was actually a highlighter to her for areas that she could actually improve and um, where there were some soft spots for her. Do you resonate with that? Yeah, um, it's true. Like it, it's good to make you think about, um, you know, various aspects of your work and where you're strong and where you could work on a bit more. And also um, the act of like writing the answers gets you thinking about what you have done and what, you know, the big picture of your work and where you can be making an impact, um, you know, Australia-wide. Yeah, and actually go as far as to go, well, look, this is what I've done and this is the next step of what I actually want to achieve because yeah. it actually clarifies it for you. Yeah, 
that's really true. So, so you mentioned the mentor. Um, you you yeah. have one. What's the value of a mentor for you? Oh, um, yeah. absolutely. Like I'd strongly recommend everyone gets a mentor. And the, the way that I've done it every time is I will just see someone who I think is amazing and I will walk up to them or email them and say, will you please be my mentor? Because you I because you have encouraged me slightly and I and most of the time they're just um generous lovely people who um are happy to I normally ask mothers to mentor or you know women in science to mentor me um and there's a really lovely story about my current mentor so I am a member of Franklin Women which is an organization for encouraging and lifting up women in health and medical research and they have a wiki they have a bunch of different events for they're just like a cheer squad for women so um I imagine you'll put a link to them. Yes, so please, yeah. They have events like uh, writing your impact on or, you know, how to, I, I don't know, how to network with people. And they, but basically they just spend a lot of time and energy taking care of each other. Um, oh, and one amazing thing they did during COVID was they rang their members and they said, how are you going? You're probably at home by yourself in lockdown with a child. How are you coping? And like, like what an organisation that just... Um, they're so touching. Anyway, so they had an event uh, writing a Wikipedia editathon, and I've always wanted to do this because I heard that there's like twenty percent of or nineteen percent of Wikipedia pages are for women and seventy one percent are for men. So I was like, "Yay, let's lift up some other women." So I went along to one, and it was you know it's not very hard to write a Wikipedia page. Um, it doesn't take very long. It's so much easier than writing a peer-reviewed publication. Um, so I wrote some Wikipedia pages and then I said to someone, uh, a physicist who I worked with at UTS, I said, are there any other people who we should write pages for? And she said, yeah, Sue Barrell. She gave a talk on women in science at UTS and she was really inspiring. So I wrote the Wikipedia page for Sue Barrell. And then I emailed her and said, do you have a photograph that we could use on the webpage? And she was so delightful and lovely and kind that um, she and I offered, I think she offered to give me her phone number and talk to me. And since then, so I think that was, I don't know if that was 2018 or um, 2019, but her and I have been um, emailing and when I'm having a really tough day or a, a tricky career question, I will ring her and ask her and she's just amazing she um uh she's she's just amazing um also and also part of franklin women is nominate other women for prizes so that you can get that like lift other women so sue encouraged me to nominate for this for the women in ai awards and last year i nominated her for an order of australia and actually she won it so it's this amazing circle of women lifting up other women and Yes, everyone should have everyone should have a mentor. Look, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think um I do I do think it is really important for women to look out for other women. I I can't underline that more more than just say it. And if there's any way that you can give a woman a helping hand, even if she doesn't know you're giving her a helping hand, yeah. then take the opportunity to do so because 
I don't think women are really good at this networking game. I think we're lifting it yeah. slightly, but we, we're not as polished and experienced as... Um, I mean, I think maybe we're natural. We would be good, but we're unable to... Like, a lot of women are unable to go to the breakfast things or the after-work things because they have to pick up their kids from school. So um, I think they have equal amount of talent and ability to communicate and network but there's just different you know no, definitely and I, I think it often boils down to the perceptions about ourselves you know look at you you're highly accomplished and you think no I'm not good enough so I immediately have to change this view of you that no it is and I, you know the funny thing is that you mentioned men will go oh yeah I'm good enough for this when they don't even qualify for half the things and women yeah. qualify for 90 percent and they go no they're not good enough so so um, this, this idealism of perfection, it comes at a cost to us. Yeah. And so since I heard those data, I just decided to apply for stuff. <laughs> Even if I didn't feel qualified, I was like, you know, I'll just apply like a man. And um, I think that that's possibly why um, I got the Women in AI prize. Because even though I didn't seem, you know, I just thought I'm just going to apply. No, like, I, listen, trust me, I've seen, I've seen who your judges were. It's on merit that you got. Wow. So. <laughs> I mean, another part, amazing part of those awards was I was sitting at a table with a, people from who do data and AI and machine learning in um, NAB, National Australia Bank, and they're just some amazing, amazing women. And I was so thrilled to sit next to them and talk with them and just hear about other way that people are using machine learning in different industry, like, it was just it was just an amazing night. Again, to any woman thinking of applying, this award certainly opens the doors for people. So um, don't be put off by maybe the robust application form because it is, and don't underestimate. So do leave time because I think Andra was inundated with people asking, "Can we're not finished? We're not finished," and she um, she did extend the the deadline right. for the applications. Yeah, but look notwithstanding that the, the the extra benefits of having done this application that you can actually look at your career and go this is actually what I've achieved yeah yeah so Melanie you're involved in a lot of volunteering what are some of the current projects that you're working on yeah so um one of my like long-term passions has been um women in stem and women in science so in the past I was um running uh like women in science for the department of biology at Macquarie Uni um, and, uh, recently what I have been doing, I really love writing Wikipedia pages for women in STEM after the Franklin women event. And in the past, I think maybe since December, 2021, they were having a women in climate change Wikipedia event. So I was writing Wikipedia pages for women in climate change. And every time, every time I do, I'm just so inspired by the amazing things that these people have done and I just learn about their careers and their degrees and what they've done to lift up Australia. It's so inspiring. If I'm ever having a crappy day, if something bad happens, I'll just write a Wikipedia page for a woman in science and um, it's just beautiful. It just inspires me. <laughs> Listen, it's great. And I think, um, you know, as you, when you're doing, when you're doing research on people, um, I, I do a certain amount of preparation for every guest that I speak with. And I look at, I look at um, women you include and I look and I go, wow, look at this woman, look at what she's doing. Like, do they realize how amazing they oh. are? Um, no, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. We are very unique species, all I can say. I mean, I start the obvious here, but you know, women yeah. are, we're special. 
That's true. That's Any true. closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience with? And most importantly as well, where can they, they reach you? Yeah, um, I am on Twitter and LinkedIn um, regularly. So they can reach me there. Okay. Um, closing thoughts. Uh, well, I think, right. Um, I wish I'd learned Python much earlier in my career. Yes. <laughs> um, earlier in my career, I was, I was loving being outside in the forests and measuring plants and soil. And, and then I was working with colleagues who were able to code in um, R and Python. And I just kind of kept postponing it. And I feel like if I had learned that much earlier, um my life would have you know my career I would have had more career choices and um now that I can it's just so delightful um machine learning is able to answer so many questions uh I, I really enjoy you know how quickly I, I'm running process-based models and they take such a long time to collect the data and to calibrate but machine learning models they're so fast they're such a joy um closing thoughts to leave the audience um, I think that uh, women in science keep lifting each other up, um, to keep believing in yourself, keep applying for awards, keep learning. Um, yeah. Thank you, Melanie. And again, congratulations on your award, richly deserved. It's been an absolute pleasure and delight speaking with you. Thank you. To our audience, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I look forward to your company next week and have a great day wherever you are in the world. Mm -hmm.